I want you to just, as we read this, this section here about the kingdom of God, I want you to just keep those things in your mind, and we're going to talk more about them at the end. Okay, so we're, we're still in Luke. We're in Luke 10. Um, we're, I'm sorry, Luke 13, verse 10. So we're going to read like the middle part of Luke 13. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So you guys know about synagogues. We've talked about synagogues before. They were like the Jewish version of a church service. It was very similar to how we do church on Sunday. And a lot of the things we do on church, in church on Sunday, was taken from the synagogue, right? Because the, the apostles were like, hey, this is a pretty good model when they were starting church up. And this was a lot of how they did it. But they would get together and they would read and somebody would usually teach. And a lot of times what happened what would happen is if a guest was there, like a guest rabbi was visiting the town, especially in smaller towns that only had sort of lay preachers. Uh, if a pro showed up, they were like, oh, we want this guy to open up Isaiah Scroll and teach us, you know. Um, like there's some churches, I've met some people from churches like in Nebraska in some farm town. They don't have a full-time pastor, you know. You imagine Tim Keller showing up on Sunday morning, be like, hey, you want to say, say a few words, buddy? The smartest pastor in America, you know? Um, that's kind of what's happening here. And so what this shows us is Jesus is still very popular. Remember, he's doing his little, his sort of his wiggle down from Galilee to Jerusalem, heading to the cross. But here's the other important thing, too, is we actually don't know when some of these stories happened because Luke, when, when I say Jesus was moving towards the cross, Luke uses that as like a theological theme, and so he pulls things out of chronological order to like really ramp it up. Jesus is moving towards the cross, and that was very much how they wrote books in the ancient world, you know. So Mark and Matthew, I think, are more chronological. Luke and John are less chronological. Uh, Luke's kind of in the middle. Anyway, so while he's in the synagogue and he's teaching, and behold, a woman, uh, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over, and she couldn't fully straighten herself. So this disabling spirit, what is this? Well, in Greek, it literally says uh, she had a spirit of weakness. Uh, What does that mean? Well, we've talked about before demonic activity in the Gospels, especially ramped up when Jesus was doing his ministry. And one of the things we talked about like five times already when we've talked about demonic stuff is I don't really, I mean, I use it on accident sometimes because I'm so used to saying it growing up, but I don't love the language of demonic possession. Because the idea of possession means you're completely out of control. You know, I think oppression is a better word. And that there's shades of how oppressed people are. So you have like the legion of demons. That guy was oppressed. There were like literally countless demons inside of him controlling things, you know. And then there's like lighter versions of it. This is uh, some sort of demonic oppression that's not just affecting the spiritual, but the physical, right? So... This, this demonic spirit, uh, and I'll say the gospel writers knew the difference between the two. A lot of people just assume everybody in the ancient world was stupid and superstitious and, uh, you know, oh, everything that bad happens is because of demons. But there's other parts where Luke specifically says, oh, this guy had this disease, this guy had this disease. In this instant, he specifically says this disease was caused by some sort of demonic oppression. And so her condition, Luke being the doctor, if you remember Luke's a doctor, in Greek he uses a very specific medical term for bent spine, right? So she was kind of hunched over. As I was reading this, I really identify with this woman. Uh, (laughs) Her broken back, you know, I always say, I need a back transplant. Um, My 
back is to the point now where whenever I drop something on the floor, I take a second, I think, would it be quicker just to get a new one on Amazon? <laughs> and how expensive is this thing that I just dropped? <laughs> right, so this is this lady, except her condition is awful, right? Um, when did I throw my back out, like, really bad? Well, I've been to the hospital a couple of times, but since I stopped riding my bike, it was a year and a half. Okay, this lady is 18 years into this. And you also have to remember, when people see me with a bad back and trying to pick something up, and they can tell I have a terrible back. In our culture, usually what happens is people go, oh, hey, let me help you with that. In this culture, everybody here is operating under that false premise that we talked about last week when we read the... we. we uh, watch that video on the book of Job, that if something bad is happening to you, it's because God is punishing you. So not only does her back hurt, but everybody assumes she deserves it because she's a sinner and she has some sort of secret sin. This is a horrible culture to get sick in, you know? And so odds are Jesus is up there teaching and everybody, in, you know, is looking at this woman in this synagogue service and judging her and thinking, nobody in here is thinking, that poor woman. Everybody in here is thinking, I wonder what she did. You know, they're trying to, like the gossip, you know, that part of, that sinful part of us that loves to gossip, that part, you know, that loves to know people's business that's none of our business. That part of uh, these people was ramping up and they're wondering, okay, what is it you think she did? Verse 12, when Jesus saw her though, he called her over and said, woman, you're free from your disability. So, it says that Jesus saw her. That's such a cool phrase. Um, <clears throat> I, I was watching some comedian the other day on YouTube, a little clip. I watch a lot of clips of stand-up comedians, and this guy was saying, have you ever, I mean, I won't give the joke and everything, just the whole clip, but he was kind of saying, like, have you ever been in such a bad mood that you just watch TV shows about bad things happening to people? And you're like, good. <laughs> I was like, no, I've never done that, but... I think that's the attitude of a lot of these people here. They're looking at this woman, and they're thinking, uh, they're thinking good. But Jesus, he saw her. So in what sense did Jesus see this woman? Um, again, like, have you ever met somebody and then judged them right away, assuming you knew everything about them? Right? We've all done this, right? I'm not the only one. And then you had an actual conversation with them and you realized everything you assumed about them was wrong and you're an idiot and you felt bad about it. Okay? All right, I'm the only one. Okay, I guess it, no. Just, yeah, people do that, right? Um, and then you, you, uh, you see them in a whole new light and you realize there's, there's depth to this person and there's, you know, this person is created in his image and marred by sin, complex and beautiful, right? This is what Jesus sees automatically when he looks at people, right? When you get to know somebody really well and you have this depth to your relationship with them because of how well you know them, that's what Jesus sees right away. And so he, he sees this woman and he looks at her and he goes, woman, that's how I say to Melissa, fix me a sandwich. No, I'm just kidding. She would beat me to death with a frying pan. No, it sounds like when you read this in the gospels, this happens a lot. Jesus says to somebody, woman, blah, blah, blah. Sounds very rude, but in Greek, it's really just the word like ma'am. He's being polite. He's saying, you know, madam, ma'am, something like that. Um, and he says, you're free. Now, if you've not, if you've never had something like this, you've never been hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee and had years of chronic pain, you don't maybe understand this language of being freed from this condition. Um, 
this like debilitating chronic issues like this, they do. They make you feel trapped, right? I can't sit up by myself. I can't, like all these things. And if you've ever helped maybe an elderly person who used to have sort of freedom of movement and now they don't, and you know, you understand, right? This feeling of being trapped and out of control. So before Jesus heals her, he says, you're free from this condition. You have this freedom. And then he heals her. He laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. So he lays hands on her. Anytime we see Jesus, specifically it says that he touched somebody, we should ask why. Because remember, he doesn't have to do it. He can heal people from a distance, like with the centurion's, oh, I'm blanking, servant? Not kid, right? It was servant. Yeah, yeah, the centurion's servant. Yeah, yeah. We did that passage already. I should know this, right? Um, anyway, he's like, uh, the centurion's like, oh, you don't even have to come to my house. You just say the word, he'll be healed. And Jesus, whoa, that's some serious faith right there. And so we know he could do that. Why? Why does he lean over and touch this woman? Because everybody thinks she sucks. And everybody in the synagogue thinks she gets what's coming to her. And she's had 18 years of this. And I mean, remember, he's in a small town synagogue. Everybody knew her whole story. You know, they knew her family. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of backstory here we don't have. But Jesus leans over and in front of everybody, he touches her, this intimacy, this compassion. And then immediately she was healed. Right, you know, we've talked about before, why are we reading the book of Luke? Because we want to see who Jesus reveals himself to be, really. And um, in this, we want not like our preconceived notions about who Jesus is, but what does the gospel of Luke say about Jesus? And so here in this section, we see two really important ideas about Jesus side by side. It's really cool. First, we see his compassion and his heart with his healing hand. He's so gentle. He leans over and he touches this woman that everybody thinks sucks. And at the second time, immediately she's healed. We see the absolute power of Jesus. All in one person, in one sentence, right next to each other. And when it happens, she jumps up and she glorifies God in front of everybody. Um, <clears throat> right, okay, so I'll tell you a story. I think I've told you this story before. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I have a friend who works at the Giants ballpark from the old church. And uh, she's actually, I grew up with her daughter. So she's my, um, you know, my friend Sarah. It's her mom, right, Vicky. And Vicky works at the ballpark as an usher right behind home plate, like dead center, the, the, closest, the closest usher to the, the plate. And uh, one time we went down, we would always go down, just say hi to her, and then go sit in our nosebleed seats because she's our friend and we like her. And one time we went down to say hi to her, and she goes, hey, there's a season ticket holder I know is not coming tonight. You want to sit down here? And I was like, oh, heck yeah. And so she literally sat us on the front bricks. Like I had my feet on the brick of the visitors um, on deck circle. And I got a foul ball and I missed another foul ball because I had my arms inside my shirt because I forgot a sweatshirt. And I was like this, freezing. And the foul ball hit me in the shoulder. Um, anyway, we got to sit up front and it was a lot of fun. Or another time, like I don't know if you've ever sat up front. Um, uh, Stephen always talks about that's his dream, right? To sit up front at the hockey game on the glass, banging on the glass, screaming at the players, right? Um, another time we got to do this, not quite up front, but we had a friend who had season tickets to the Warriors, like downstairs, a couple of rows back. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Or another time we were up front was um, uh, Melissa and I went to a MXPX punk rock concert in Five Iron Frenzy, and uh, we didn't realize there was a whole line of people trying to get in the concert. And so we went... We got there early, and we are like, oh, let's get dinner. And we went to the restaurant next door. And then some guy came in the restaurant and said, hey, everybody who's coming to the show, 
if you want to go in first, you can come in this side door. We didn't know. We were just trying to have some fries before the show or whatever. So we walked in. The whole place was empty. And we walked right up front, dead center, in the middle. And then the whole crowd came in and went behind us. Anyway, there was a mosh pit. And so I just put Melissa in front of me, and I grabbed onto the gate, you know. And everybody was like, it was a pretty wild show for, I mean, what were we, probably 30s, early 30s then. But I was still an old man, you know, already. Um, it was pretty fun. I've been to a lot of MXPX shows and Five Iron shows, but I'm usually somewhere in the back. Being right up front, you know, where the guy's stomping his feet while he's playing. Front row seats, my point is, are way better than sitting in the nosebleeds. When I was watching that Giants game, it was like there was a sense of, oh my gosh, these guys throw way harder than I thought. <laughs> like when you're up close and you're watching these guys whip that baseball, or same thing with the basketball, when you're up high, it just looks like you're watching it on TV, where I usually sit at Chase Center, or this was at Oracle. Um, but when you're down low, you see how high the, the game happens above the rim in the NBA. It's crazy how big these guys are and how high they jump. There's like a whole nuance to the detail you don't see when you're sitting up high. Being up close to the action is way better. And it's especially true when God is working in his kingdom. And that's part of the reason I wanted to be a pastor and plant a church is um, there's literally nothing better than getting front row seats to watch God work in somebody's life. There's like a whole nuance to it that you don't see when you read about it on Christianity Today blog or Gospel Coalition or whatever. And we live in a city where, let's be honest, it's hard to plant a church and these stories are few and far between. Right? And I go to these pastors conferences and then everybody, like these pastors cohorts and stuff and these guys from Oregon and Texas or whatever are like, oh man, you know, we did 15 baptisms last week. And then I come back to San Francisco and all of the pastors are just like, boy, this is hard. You know, one pastor here calls it concrete soil trying to plant a church in San Francisco. So we, I think, especially appreciate these stories when they happen, when God is moving and when we see this stuff. And when we get to see this, the compassion, like in the synagogue, right? These people got to see up close and personal, the compassion of God and the absolute power of God all in one place. And um, so you would imagine then, right? Front row seats to watching God work like this. What's the response going to be? Everybody in the synagogue is watching this woman praise and glorify God. They've known her her entire life, and they know that she's had this condition for 18 years. We don't know if she's 18 or if she's 56. We don't know how old she is. It doesn't say. But she's had this condition for 18 years. So you assume that everybody would go, wow, look at God working. This is amazing, right? Let's praise and glorify him with this woman. No, what happens is the original, can I say Karen? Is that like a derogatory term? The original Karen shows up. You know, this is the new, like Reddit started this thing about Karen, right? I saw a thing uh, on the, this is completely sidetracked. We should be, what was it on the Christian um, memes? The, the disrespectful Christian memes, subreddit, whatever it is. That's <laughs> pretty funny. It was like, be more Karen, like C-A-R-I-N, and less Karen. And it was like somebody, you know, I was like, that's kind of the whole point of this sermon, by the way. But anyway, here's the original Karen, as in the lady at the grocery store screaming about her mask, right? Look at what happens, verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which, to, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Okay, so there's a lot of buts in the Bible. Um, I had like 50 jokes for that, by the way, that I'm not going to go through. You know, there's good buts, there's bad buts, there's some... No. Uh, <laughs> right, there's a lot of times you see the word but in the Bible. 
And um, a lot of times it's great. You know, you were a sinner lost in your sin and you're dead to your sin and trespasses and all this stuff, but God, right? That's a good but. Uh, anyway, I literally had like 50 ways I could go with this, but I don't, I don't want the EFCA to find out and strip my license and everything. So we'll just pretend we're not junior hires and we'll move on, right? Anyway, um, this is the bad but, right? Is God does something good, but the leader of the synagogue, right? This is not good. And so the ruler of the synagogue, he was like the original senior pastor. This is where we get the role of a senior pastor from in the Bible, you know, in our tradition. Basically comes from we copied these original synagogues, these old school synagogues. Um, and so this guy gets up and look at this, okay? This is really easy to pass over and miss. But what does he do? He says to the people. He doesn't say it to Jesus. He doesn't get up and say, Jesus, don't heal people on the Sabbath. He turns, pretends like Jesus didn't just do this and talks to the people, right? Because it's easier to ask people that can't heal somebody when we should allow people to heal. It's hard to look at the guy who can actually heal somebody and say, hey, when should we heal people, right? These are two very different things. It's <clears throat> so he's indignant, it says, because Jesus healed. Do you remember when we talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I explained this, right? That a lot of Christians, oh no, did I accidentally commit this sin? No. If you've ever been worried about it, you didn't commit it, right? Um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit basically is this. You're so opposed to the things of God that when you look at, there's like levels to that, how opposed to God you are. This is all the way to the one side where you even look at God doing something amazing and you go, that's the work of the devil, right? That's, that's bad, what God is doing in this instant. It's like you're that far gone is the idea. This is pretty close to that, isn't it? Jesus is literally standing in this guy's synagogue, healing this woman from this small town that everybody knew and hated, probably, and judged. It's this amazing work of compassion and power. And he was like, hey, man, it says no coffee in the sanctuary. You know what I mean? Like, you ever been to that church? <laughs> right? I worked at that church for a while. It says no, no coffee in the sanctuary. He's going through the Sabbath rules. Right? This is what he's doing. This is the Sabbath rule about Sabbath. Um, sorry, the Ten Commandments, the rule about Sabbath. Right? Basically, six days you should do your labor and do your work, but on the seventh, take a day off, guys. Right? <laughs> the day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. This is the amazing part about this rule, too. It also extends to slaves and servants, your male servant or your female servant, and your animals. Give your animals a day off. Uh, and... Uh, guests who aren't part of the people of Israel, don't put them to work on the Sabbath in your field, right? And the sojourner, right? So the idea goes like this. The idea of the Sabbath is pretty simple. After the fall, one of the curses of the fall was work is going to be hard. Stuff's not just going to grow by itself. And so because of that, you're going to be tempted to just work all the time. And God says, you're going to work yourself to death. So I want you to take a day off and I want you to think about me on that day off. It's pretty simple. That's about as dense as the regulations go. But what they did was they built up all of these extra rules around the Sabbath. You can only take this many steps. You can't start a fire. You, you know, like all this extra stuff that these rabbis had come up with of rules of breaking the Sabbath. And we've talked about this before in the other part where Jesus was fighting people about the Sabbath. But basically, Jesus goes, you're missing the whole point. You're trying to follow these rules and you're forgetting the actual reason for the Sabbath. And you're also enforcing those rules like they're part of the scripture, and they're not. 
And so, verse 15, Jesus answers. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? So, the, the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor guy, right? He talks to the crowd, forgetting Jesus is standing right there. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus turns and he talks straight to him. He answered him. It's a power move, right? Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is asserting his authority. But what he says is he's talking to him, but then he goes, you hypocrites. That's plural. So he says to the leader, you're all hypocrites, right? Because hypocrite, you know what that means, right? Just you know, lying, like uh, the, the literal word was the actor who would wear a mask on his face while he was acting. Right? That's what a hypocrite means. You're pretending to be something you're not. And the idea is, by using the plural, it's not that just the synagogue leader thought this. He got up and he said to the crowd, why are we healing on the Sabbath here? There's all these other days. One of the rules actually was no medical treatment that's not life-threatening on the Sabbath. You know, that was the idea, right? So if you had a chronic issue, you deal with that on Monday or Sunday for them, right? And so... The synagogue leader gets up, the ruler, he goes, you know, no healing on the Sabbath. And everybody, yeah, you know, the crowd, they're agreeing. And so Jesus is calling them out. And what he does is he shows them a flaw in their thinking. You see, because the Sabbath had lots of convenient little loopholes in these rules. And so one of them was, there's a, a collection of teachings called the Mishnah, which is actually way later than this, but a lot of the thinking comes from this era, um, allowed for animals to move around on the Sabbath for certain rules, um, and you like, you could never tie a knot on the Sabbath, was breaking the Sabbath, but you could tie a knot if you were tying up your animal. And you couldn't walk your animal, but you could walk your animal to get a drink of water. And so they had all these things, right? Uh, they had rules about like public and private spaces, and so like the well in town was technically a public space, and so on the Sabbath they would put a fence around it, call it a house, then you could go to it because it was a house, you know, and feed your animals. And so Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy. You guys have all these loopholes for animals, but not for people, right? That's what he says next. Look at, and not, and not, not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. She's a daughter of Abraham, the only person in the Bible that's ever called a daughter of Abraham. Right? They're sons of Abraham, but the daughter of Abraham is a special designation. She's part of the people of God. She's made in the image of God. She is way more important than donkeys. Shouldn't she be helped on the Sabbath if you have all these loopholes to help your donkey? And then, verse 17. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So remember, this is an honor and shame culture, like a lot of Eastern cultures are now. We're an individual. When you, when, in the West, we think of ourselves. How does this affect me? You know, uh, in this culture, honor, shame, was you could bring shame to your entire family and your clan. It was kind of a big deal. And so uh, when it says that they were put to shame, that's kind of a major sentence to anybody reading this in the ancient Near East. Right? This is a big deal. They were just schooled, or they were chastised by the most famous rabbi in the entire country, maybe the world, you know, in the Jewish world. And so <clears throat> there's a contrast in this verse. These guys were shamed, but the rest of the people were rejoicing. So shame on one side, rejoicing and joy on the other. Luke is painting a very clear picture, right? There's the opposition to God and the people in his kingdom. 
And then he's going to teach a little bit about that kingdom. Look, there's two little parables here. He said, therefore, what's the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nest in his branches. Okay, so a couple of things that people always get hung up on with this. It's, you know, I say this a lot. It's weird how much commentary space is devoted to the parts that don't matter. So first off, like in one of the other Gospels, I think it says like the smallest of all the seeds. And everybody's like, it's not the smallest. There's 15 seeds smaller. I'm like, all right, calm down, man. He was using language of the day. Those people, when they thought of the smallest seed, they thought of a mustard seed. Okay, the second thing is it doesn't become a tree, it's a bush. All right, shut up. Right, it's a big tree. Right, it's a big bush, right? It, okay, you, like, you're going to miss the whole picture because you're being a punk, right? Uh, he's talking to ancient Near Eastern people. He's an ancient Near Eastern man talking to ancient Near Eastern people. So like the designation between a tree and a bush, right? Uh, he didn't care. Nobody cared. Nobody was like, hey, it's actually a... Right, okay, you get the idea. Now, what he's talking about here is the kingdom of God and Babylon, right? Um, uh, the, the kingdom of God, we've talked about this a bit too, is in Western Christianity, we've reduced the work of God to does he save me or not? Because we're individuals. And we think about, did I walk down the aisle? How does this affect me? And we've reduced this, this grand idea of the kingdom of God to something very narrow, to just salvation. The kingdom of God, though, includes more than salvation. The kingdom of God is, it includes salvation, but there's more to it than that, right? It's where God, it's not a place, it's a people that God is ruling. And where those people go, the light of the kingdom shines. And those people are all saved, right? We're redeemed. We've been regenerating, given new hearts, and we're part of the new covenant. But then because of that, the kingdom of God has effects outside of the church and outside of personal salvation. And what Jesus said here is this kingdom rule of God started as a very small seed it, in the world, it broke into the world with the ministry of Jesus, the three-and-a-half-year ministry where Jesus was walking around showing people what the kingdom looked like. Right? He, look at, the, look at the, the ministry of Jesus. Who's the team that he chooses? A bunch of losers and fishermen and lower-class people and then a tax collector and a zealot and like this, this odd group of guys. Um, he had a lot of women traveling with him in the ancient world. It was unheard of. You know, like this, this didn't work like this. He heals people. Right? And turns back to Eden is the idea. This, he shows people this sickness and death is not the way that it's supposed to be. He calls out injustice. He acts out of compassion. The feeding of the 5,000, right? he feeds the hungry. People repent and turn to God. Enemies are loved instead of hated. Um, this was happening during the ministry of Jesus, these three and a half years. But if you were living in 33 AD when Jesus was walking around, somewhere around there, when Jesus was walking around doing this stuff, and you lived in India, or you lived in Africa, a lot of good it did you, right? Because it was happening in a small, you know, basically the nation of Israel is like not much bigger than the Bay Area. It's small, right? It's like from here to Santa Cruz, maybe, I think. Like, it, it's, it's a tiny little area. And so the kingdom started with just 12 knuckleheads, some women, and a few disciples, a few other disciples, and then Pentecost happened, right? And all of a sudden, boom, the church explodes. And then persecution happened, and boom, the church explodes even more. Paul, he goes into the Roman world, and Thomas goes into India, and I think it was Matthew went into Africa. You know, like, the gospel started to spread to the point where this is what the world looks like now. Okay, now I'll give you a couple caveats about this map. 
I didn't check any of this math and I just pulled this off of Google Images. Well, actually Bing Images because Google stopped letting you download stuff quite the same way. But this is a map of what the percentages of people who claim to be Christian in the world. Some of these numbers are weird and wrong and not super precise. Like there's more Christians than this in China right now than what this map says. But, um, and India too has more than what this map says. So just looking at this, I know there's a couple of mistakes. But you can see already the gospel started with a hundred and something knuckleheads sitting in an upper room praying to this percentage of the world. Right? The gospel has spread all over the world. And here's the thing, right? Jesus says in the, the back to the verse, Jesus says, um, uh, the birds of the air make nests in the branches. So this map is the spread of the church numerically. This is people who claim to be Christians. The sad part is the church has spread, but hasn't always lived up to its calling to be representatives of the kingdom. Right? This image, birds of the air, right? Re uh, birds making a nest. The idea is this peaceful, restful place. The kingdom of God should be a peaceful, restful place for the birds to come hang out. That's the outsiders. Um, there's a big debate, too, with the theologians and stuff, because usually when the Bible talks about birds, it's negative. Uh, birds are bad. In the ancient world, they're scavengers. And, but here, the image is clear. The birds are good, right? You know, they're, they're finding rest. And so where believers are, the world should be a better place, right? As the kingdom of God spreads, the birds of the air should find rest in, our, you know, in the, the tree of the mustard seed, even though mustard seeds don't make trees. Where a believer is somebody's boss, the employees should be better off because of it, right? Where, uh, the, the <clears throat> where a, somebody has a Christian neighbor, they should be better off because of it. If somebody has Christian employees, they should be better off. Christian family, they should be better off because of it. And look, Jesus uses another picture to make the same point of the growth. Again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I don't really know a lot about bread uh, and how bread gets made. I think Boudin's does it, and it's magic. I don't know. Melissa's been making sourdough, so she actually volunteered to come up and teach us all about this part of the passage. Since she's so good, she did the New City Catechism. She said she's ready to go. Just kidding. Uh, she's over her stage fright. Just kidding. Anyway, I think you put some yeast in some flour, and it goes, you know? I think that's the basic idea, right? And he was like, this is the same idea. The mustard seed starts small, it gets big. The yeast in the flour pff, gets big. You know, I, I, it's actually not rocket surgery, right? The point is it goes from small to big. Now, that's the passage. Um, the kingdom of God in the book of Luke is constantly compared to the way the world works. We're, we're supposed to think about this. And then as we read the rest of the New Testament, we get an even better picture. Revelation really fills it in. And we talk about a lot about Babylon. And what does Babylon look like? Babylon is this kingdom that's opposed to the kingdom of God, and it's about self-serving. It's about me, me, me. Right? This happens with, on a couple of levels. It happens with individuals. I'll tell you a story. When I first started riding motorcycles, I didn't know anything about motorcycles. And Melissa still brings this up. <laughs> right? And I went and I bought a motorcycle. Yeah, she's laughing. I don't need your judgment. Okay. And I went and I bought this motorcycle, and I thought it was really cool, and I was really excited about it. It's called a Kawasaki Vulcan. I did no research. I didn't know about it. It was my first bike. I didn't know about bikes. So I got out there, and the guy that sold it to me was a mechanic. I bought it on Craigslist. 
and we were broke. $1,500 was like all the money we had in the entire world, and that's what I spent on this bike. I mean, it was like, you know, we're eating ramen for the month till I get paid again because I'm buying this motorcycle, right? So <clears throat> I was a part-time youth pastor. So I went out and I bought the bike, and I got it home, and I was like, I'm going to go for a ride into Marin. I got up to Marin. It broke down. The guy was a mechanic, and he said, hey, if you have any problems, give me a call, right? So I got the bike back home. I had to pay to get it towed home with our ramen money. So now we're eating mayonnaise sandwiches. And <laughs> I got the bike home. I called the guy, and he said, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. There's just this little piece. I'll come change it out for you. I said, great. Scheduled time for him to come out. Never came out. Called him back. His phone's off. Like, this number is no longer in service. So I took it to a real mechanic, and he said, oh, yeah, there's, it's kind of hard to explain, but, but you know what an alternator is, right? A little thing spins around a magnet. On a normal motorcycle, there's an alternator cover. That's right. Oh, weren't you an airplane mechanic? He should know about this, right? It's <laughs> so on a motorcycle, there's a little, like, a little cover. It's a circle, and it has three bolts on it. You take the three bolts off, and the alternator is right there. And there's three bolts. You pull the alternator off, you put the new one in, and you cover it. Turns out, Kawasaki used a motor and a frame from two different bikes to make the Vulcan that didn't fit. And so the frame went right across that little cover that you need to take off. So you can't take it off without taking the whole engine out of the bike. So to get the bike fixed was $2,500. This guy was a mechanic. He realized the alternator was broken. So what he did was he went out and he bought a new battery. He put it in the bike, charged it up, sold me the bike, and then took off. Broke and... I sat there and had a whole conversation with him. Oh, what do you do? I'm a youth pastor. Oh, that's really cool. My grandpa was a pastor kind of thing, you know? <laughs> Screwed me. 1500 bucks. We were, yeah. So anyway, I still hear about that from time to time. <laughs> the stupidest, easily top two or three stupidest things I ever did was buy that bike without researching it or figuring it out, right? So anyway, that's Babylon. That's a guy completely screwing me to make 1500 bucks. He knew that bike was broken. He didn't want to fix it. And so he's like, I'm going to pass the buck. This is going to be somebody else's problem. And I'm going to benefit from this. But Babylon happens in bigger groups, too. It doesn't just happen in individuals, right? You know, like after slavery happened and Jim Crow laws keeping African Americans down in the South for years, you know, like there's some horrible stories about the stuff that happened in the Jim Crow South. Or there's examples of like... Um, you know, if you read, like, the history of Chinatown right here, some horrible stuff white folks did to Chinese people. And basically, the reason Chinatown exists is because the white folks were like, hey, you can't live in my neighborhood. So Chinese people, you've all got to live here. And the reason there's a lot of Asian folks in the sunset is because that was kind of the first place that they let Chinese people move out of Chinatown. And there's, like, and even the... the, the um, the construction of Chinatown is racist stuff because the white people said to the Chinese people, okay, you can have Chinatown, but I need you to make it look real Chinesey or whatever, you know? And that's why all the buildings look like uh, temples from China. Not, but buildings in China apparently don't look like that. It'd be like if I went to China and the Chinese people were like, oh, white people can only live in this neighborhood and every building has to look like a Gothic cathedral, right? <laughs> it's messed up, right? There's like this messed up history. Or another one just in San Francisco is Geary Boulevard has this whole racist history to Geary existing. 
Basically, there was an African-American neighborhood in the Fillmore, and white people were living in the Richmond and working in downtown, and it was taking forever to get there. And so what they did was they just eminent domained, took all the black folks' homes, and then told them, but we're going to pay you for them, and we're going to get you new homes when we're done building Geary. They built the Geary Avenue, or Boulevard, so you can get all the way. It's like a freeway, basically, that goes through San Francisco. And then when it was all done, these African-American families who had been stripped of this family wealth, right, uh, they said, okay, well, where's our new homes that you guys promised us? And they were like, oh, you can live in these ghetto projects that are run down and completely disgusting. So we took these nice homes that you guys had, this generational wealth that's been stripped from these families so that people could get from the Richmond to downtown faster, right? There's examples of this, right? It happens all the time, and it happens with nations, too. Think of Nazi Germany. I was just reading this, like, article about how everybody now tends to be like, well, it was, there was only a few Nazis. And everybody, like, I had a German guy that lived with me, and he actually told me. He was honest. He said, I had one grandpa who broke his arm in a car door to get out of being in the army. And I had another one who was a Nazi and was like all in. He flew in the Luftwaffe, I think. I don't remember. He told me. But anyway, right, like the truth is most of Germany was sucked in. An entire nation was sucked in by what Hitler did. It wasn't like there were uprisings and, I mean, there were pockets of stuff. But this whole nation, this whole nation went Babylon, you know. And so it happens on these levels. And the thing is, the gospel, the kingdom of God, comes into the world, and Babylon is pushing this way, and the kingdom of God sort of pushes back. Right? Like, I just watched all the Iron Mans on Disney. So Iron Man 1, 2, 3, it was like a Captain America one I had to watch. Uh, he was in a Spider-Man, some Avengers. So they're all kind of blurred in my head. I don't know which one it was. But there's some scene in an Iron Man thing where some bad guy is shooting an energy beam at him, and then Iron Man goes, you know, with his little hands and shoots the beam back, and it pushes him, and then it pushes him, and, you know, and I don't even remember who wins, but that's in every comic book movie, you know? Okay, so this is the kingdom of God in Babylon, right? And we know the kingdom of God comes in and says to Babylon, not anymore, and, you know, fires that spread. So um, the the kingdom is what we see in this passage. It's the anti-Babylon. It's Babylon in this passage looks at this woman and goes, she sucks and she deserves it. She gets what's coming. And the kingdom of God says compassion and love. And so um, the, the, this is what we want the porch to be, an outpost of the kingdom. A bunch of people out there with those Iron Man hands shooting laser beams at the kingdom of Babylon, right? Use that for the quote this week. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, this is what we do, is we look at the world and we say, where is Babylon working? And how do I, as a part of the kingdom, because I'm part of the porch, I'm part of this church, I'm part of the king, this outpost of the kingdom, how do I make that better? How do I be a different boss than other people? Right? How do I be a better husband than other people? How do I be a better employee? How do I treat the wait staff? Right? How do I love my neighbors? All of these are examples of how we're called to act like Jesus. Because, again, we always try to end with some sort of a, um, like a gospel focus. The more that you understand that you're basically this woman and this is what Jesus did for you, the more that you're going to be able to reflect that into the world. And the more that you think... You're the one in charge who makes the rules, and you're important. You're going to act like 
this butthead in the, the synagogue, right? You're going to act like Babylon. And so you got to catch yourself. Where am I acting like Babylon? At the beginning, we listed things. Hopefully, some of these things that we listed, there are opportunities in your life to go out and to act like the kingdom of God, right? To act as a, an ambassador um, for God. We want you to do this again. So here, how's it? I'll end it. We want this to happen with you. I want this to happen with you on an individual level with uh, whatever groups you're a part of. You need to get in there and reflect kingdom values so that this kingdom uh, goes out to the whole world. Right? We want to be the kind of church that's helping missionaries. and help, you know, um, I'll tell you one more kingdom of God story. So we always think this has to work like I just said missionaries. We think this has to work like this where... It's all about personal salvation. The kingdom of God is, if you're not out there preaching the gospel of personal salvation, what are you really doing? And that's true. We've talked about that with the PAP stuff. We want to be out there talking about salvation and redemption and all this stuff. But it also happens in more subtle ways. And a great example of this is um, St. Frank. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you a story of two coffee shops. Four Barrel and St. Frank. Okay, Four Barrel, you guys know Four Barrel Coffee? It's out on Valencia. Okay, so this kind of all collapsed right before I knew most of you. Four Barrel was like the original Me Too, before Me Too was a thing, I think. Turned out it was this toxic work, it was this hipster coffee shop with this specialty coffee, but it was a toxic environment. And all of the women who worked there were constantly being harassed. It was awful. To the point where it got in the paper and the owners had to give up the company to the employees. Right? It's, it's a coffee shop. People go there, they buy coffee, and they're supporting this awful you know, regime of oppression. Okay, now, my buddy, Kevin, started St. Frank, which is a roastery, and, you know, uh, you guys get coffee all there all the time. And uh, Kevin and his wife, Lauren, they moved to San Francisco, and um, <clears throat> he had been to seminary, and he thought to himself, he didn't feel, like, called to pastoral ministry like I do. He wanted to take the kingdom into the world. How do I do that? He had some options, and one of them was to open a coffee shop. So what he did was he looked at the, how do coffee shops run? And he realized something. Man, coffee shops, like when you buy coffee, most of the time, it sucks for the guy who grew your coffee. Right? The people throughout the coffee chain until basically you get the coffee, it's really hard for a lot of those people. Right? Growing coffee, but, you know, still living in just abject poverty, you know. And so Kevin looked at this and he said, I think people would pay a little bit more for coffee if they knew the whole chain was done well. And if we took care of the people that live in Colombia and Belize and different parts of Africa. And so Kevin now, he like flies. I think he's somewhere right now. I just saw it on Facebook, right? He, he's where? Kenya. He's in Kenya right now, meeting with guys who, I mean, he's an amazing dude. And what he's doing is he is running a coffee shop with the kingdom of God. The people that work for him love it. He's a great boss. The, the whole supply chain loves it because they get treated like human beings and they get a living wage. And so when you buy St. Frank coffee, what you're doing is, you know, that's why, well, if we ever get to have coffee again and if we find the coffee maker, we have, <laughs> we have a St. Frank account because this is one of those things where the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like for somebody who's a believer who's been personally redeemed to say, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to act like Jesus in my sphere of influence. And in the way that Kevin makes coffee, he's acting like Jesus. 
right? And so you have some sort of a sphere of influence like Kevin has. And my question to you is, how are you living out the kingdom of God in those ways? Because you've been personally touched by his compassion, how are you compassionate to the people around you? How are you a better boss and husband and wife and, you know, neighbor and friend and brother and parent or whatever it is, right? All right, let's pray.